Hello, I'm Michael Dunn, and you're listening to Oregon Rainmakers from KLCC Studios. My guest today is Frank Lawson, the general manager for eWeb. eWeb is Oregon's largest customer-owned utility and provides water and electricity to the Eugene community, as well as parts of East Springfield and the McKenzie River Valley area. We're going to talk about his career, the role of eWeb in our community, and what the future holds for our energy and water needs. Frank, welcome. Yeah, welcome, Michael. Nice to be here. Thank you. Great, great. So um, it was interesting as I was researching for this, uh, our talk, you know, you have a very uh, lengthy resume and, and bio, and you've done so much um, within sort of the, the utility field. But take us back to the beginning. How did you get into the position that led you to becoming general manager, I think, back in 2016? Yes, that's correct. Um, it has been quite a journey. And, and I guess I would start by saying that I am a Eugene native. I was born and raised in Eugene, went to Francis Willard Elementary School, <laughs> uh, which is the school right next to the South Eugene Market of Choice. Uh, and so then went to South Eugene, where I graduated and ended up defecting and going to Oregon State. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> which uh, uh, my parents cried a little bit my, uh, in that one, but uh, went there and uh, got a degree in electrical and computer engineering and then defected again and went to California, uh, San Diego, uh, which is really where my career started. Okay. And um, it's when I say a journey, um, I would actually say that from a utility perspective, I'm uh, relatively a newbie. <laughs> uh, I, when I went to college and some of my early career, it was not involved in the, the power industry at all. It was not involved in the water industry um, I worked for a variety of different companies doing a variety of different things. Uh, my first job was with a company called Action Instruments. It was a few hundred people. And I was really fortunate along the way to have worked for and with some really wonderful people who set great examples for me, gave me opportunities to do all kinds of things within organizations. And even within the first 10 years of graduating I got the opportunity to work in operations, in finance, in customer service, in sales, in engineering, in marketing, uh, of which all that variety kind of accumulated through the years, um, doing a lot in process controls, manufacturing. I worked for Geldwin, the, the door and window manufacturer, um, and ended up back in Eugene um, uh, in 2010, um, really uh, for family reasons. Uh, my mother had passed away in 2007. My dad was living on his own, and I was actually visiting my dad when he told me about his electric bill. And I said, <laughs> i got to take a look at this. It seemed a little high. Uh, and so uh, I went on the website to check eWeb's rates and saw this position. It was an engineering position uh, and thought the the job looked interesting, and so <laughs> really was not necessarily a career move for me, but an opportunity to get closer to my dad. I had some really wonderful years with him uh, before he passed away a few years ago, um, and uh, then um, you know through that time had had a lot of executive and management experience that that I gained eventually working for a company called Danaher. And most people don't know Danaher. It's about a $200 billion company that people don't know. (laughs) Um, It's uh, mostly known in the Northwest as maybe the parent company of Tektronix. And so people tend to know Tektronix. And and so I ended up uh, being the vice president of marketing and engineering, which is a little bit of an odd combination um, for one of their uh, subsidiary divisions. And 
Um, eventually, uh, the the job of general manager opened up in 2016, and um, I went through the process and and was given the opportunity to take to take the reins. So. It's interesting what you just described as, as sort of doing a function of marketing and, and engineering. And those are obviously, I mean, kind of left brain, right brain type functionalities. But I mean, it's interesting because now as the boss, the general manager, I imagine you have to have optics on all the different you know, uh, operating principles and operating areas and departments for the organization. How, how was that in terms of you were educated, classically educated as an engineer, but obviously you have this other experience in what might be described as more creative pursuits like marketing and stuff. How has that been to kind of marry those two together, both as a functional principle of your job, but then also as a leader? Sure. I, I think part of it, um, very early on, I, I found that I would rather work with people than components. Okay. And so um, the opportunities that I got earlier on in some of these other areas, which were very customer-focused, really started to uh, hone my skills in the areas of communications, um, uh, relationship management, leadership, all those things that might not be uh, typical or traditionally associated with with an engineering education. Um, The varied background... uh, gave me the opportunity to to put myself in a lot of different kinds of positions, uh, and I think that variety really helps. Um, sure. I, especially now as the general manager, um, I really it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to see all the different things that the organization is doing uh, for the community, uh, water, electric, um, all the different community services, uh, working with. Uh, five commissioners who provide oversight. They're publicly elected. They represent our community. And so being able to translate and communicate with a lot of different people about some pretty complex issues is something that I think um, uh, that background benefited me uh, in doing. It's interesting, and I've talked to other, you know, leaders like yourself who you know, started out in a particular career path and then ascended to the, the top job. Are there aspects of what you used to do that you kind of miss? Because now that you're the boss, you don't necessarily get to do it. I imagine as an engineer, I imagine that there were, you know, uh, 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 problem solving aspects of a job. And I imagine you do a lot of problem solving, but is there something about being sort of the engineer that you kind of miss? Oh, certainly. And it it's, Almost in any field, um, the when you take on a different level of responsibility, uh, it gets broader. Okay, you know, and so you you have to, but you can't go into the depth of the detail that maybe you sure. found enjoyable uh, early on. Um, so it's it's a different level of problem solving, and um, there are aspects of it that I miss. You know, diving into a detail sure. and. and in all kinds of, of interesting and, and deep ways. And I don't get to do that as much anymore. Um, but it, it's also an opportunity to see others um, who are really good at that uh, do it. And yeah. so uh, really it's the, the joy is a little different now. It's, it's more of a directional um, leadership, guidance, uh, mentoring, you know, trying to in some ways pay forward the opportunities that I was given when I was younger to, to some others. And, and at eWeb, I'm really fortunate, again, to work with some people who really care about the community. They're really good at their jobs. 
uh, and um, it it makes it very rewarding for the person who's leading the organization. Sure. Well, how would you describe sort of your management style? How, how do you how do you go about your job and and both deal with your direct uh, reports, but then also a lot of the frontline employees that you have a lot of. I think you're a 500 person sure. organization. Sure. Yeah. I. Um, it's an interesting question. I. You know, there's all kinds of sort of formal definitions of leadership sure. style. Um, mostly what I try to do is is put the right people in the right positions and give them uh, some high-level guidance and direction. I uh, personally am not one who micromanages. Um, I tend to try to look at things from a visionary perspective and try to help people connect their job with the, the greater purpose of the organization. Um, and so... Um, when you have the the more people you have in your organization, and I've been responsible for larger organizations than eWeb, uh, the more important it is to be able to align an organization, to be able to tell stories, paint the picture, and and help people really connect what they're doing with the direction and the purpose and the focus of the organization. And um, really. Um, eWeb is is an ideal size. Um, I I love the size of eWeb um, as an employee because it's large enough that we have lots of opportunities, but it's not so large that you get lost in the shuffle and you can't see how you connect to to the really important work that we do. Sure, sure. You mentioned too. You know, you you your your bosses are a publicly elected board. Um, what is that like? Because obviously. I imagine there are many counterparts of, of you that work for private utility companies, and so they have a, a board perhaps, but you know they're, 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 they're much more beholden to, say, shareholders or something like that. What's it like having bosses who are public? They, they are in, maybe in, in, with the small P politicians. You know, what's that like? Right. Well, I've uh, really been fortunate at eWeb that over the last um, six years or seven years, however long it's been, to have had... Uh, some really good board members. Yeah. Um, they uh, represent their, the community well. Um, they provide good oversight and direction. They're respectful of each other. Uh, they're respectful of me and the organization. Um, it's especially important, I think, in today's world that uh, you can have disagreements. You can debate things uh, on their merits um, without getting stifled and polarized and some of the things that you see going on across society. So I've been pretty lucky. It, it has been an adjustment. They are uh, publicly elected. Uh, they represent a broad constituency. Uh, a private board is much different where you'll have a board member with maybe a specific type of expertise um, but you know their their job is a little bit different than than some of those board members, and I find that they they really uh, provide good guidance to to me and the organization and help us wrestle through some some difficult uh, decisions and issues but it's um, it is you know it, it is just as interesting having five bosses with <laughs> with uh, their their various personalities and uh, um, again, I think the really important part, and there has been some turnover in that over sure. the last few years. I think there's um, only one on the board that was actually on the board when I was hired as the general manager. So there's there's four new ones, um, and I think the really important part of that is that 
you know, how they conduct themselves and the representation that they have of the community. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to take our first break. We're talking with uh, Frank Lawson, the general manager of eWeb. We'll be back in just a second. I'm Barbara Dellenbach, host of KLCC's Oregon Grapevine. Georgina Haynes is a puppet maker in the movie industry. She details the differences between puppets and dolls. The difference with dolls is that they become the storytelling device for the individual, whereas puppets are a storytelling device for the masses. Georgina expounds on how she found her calling in art and the importance of the Northwest in her life on the newest Oregon Grapevine at klcc.org. And we're back talking with Frank Lawson, the uh, the general manager for eWeb. So, you know, eWeb is one of those organizations that we all know about and have a general idea of what you do, but uh, love to hear it from the boss's mouth. Describe email, explain, or email, describe eWeb, explain what it is and, and, and how you manage it and, and how your employees go about doing the job. Sure. Great. Uh appreciate the question. The The simple way to describe eWeb is we're a delivery company. Okay. Um, we uh, deliver two very essential services. Uh, one is electricity and the other is water. And we have to do it on demand 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year into whatever future time you want to you wanna state. Uh, in perpetuity, we have to do that. So we... Um, and people notice when we're not doing it, uh, obviously, when there's storms or uh, facilities that, that have trouble or a pipe breaks, you know, people tend to notice when there's a disruption in service. And so, um, and we use over a billion dollars worth of assets to be able to do that. And uh, it's pretty amazing to think about the fact that we can deliver a thousand gallons of water for a few dollars. Mm. Uh, and when you think about how much water weighs, you know, that's, that's about 8,000 pounds for $2. I don't know where you could get 8,000 pounds of anything delivered <laughs> for $2. Um, you know, Amazon can't even do that at least yet. Um, but yeah, I think I, there's a lot that goes into that delivery, uh, on the electric side. For example, we, uh, manage generation all the way transmission delivered locally. And then on the water side, uh, we, are very fortunate to have a wonderful drinking water source, the Mackenzie River, uh, of which we do the processing and filtration process and then and then deliver. So um, two different types of delivery, um, but uh, I would describe uh, eWeb that way as, as having to do that um, and do it in a way that is consistent with the values that the community has. So in, around environmental stewardship, uh, managing their, their money, appropriately it's it's not eweb's money it's our community's money mm -hmm. it's investments that that our community's made uh, through the decades to be able to do that yeah um we'll have lots of i have lots of questions about eweb in general but one just popped up in my head as you were talking about not just the fact that you generate power but you have to get it from the place it's generated to my house and yeah i think Utilities have been in the news a lot, a lot, a lot of times for the fact that you just, you just remarked on there are storms there are all sorts of things. And it seems that, you know, our, our storms are getting more violent and, and more and more challenging. And so I guess my question is this, 
what's more or what's either more challenging or what just takes more work the generation of the power or transmitting it to its end user and i guess which one has which one keeps you up at night because things can go wrong well certainly there are there are threats across the board okay. uh, for for both the electric sector and and the drinking water sector um, and I don't know if we would have enough time for me to list out all the things that, that we have to consider uh, when when trying to look at how we mitigate for those. Uh, it is, I, I would point out, it is part of uh, eWeb's priority to really look at resiliency and being able to continue that delivery under all of these types of threats. And so uh, part of what we do now um, is looking at how flexible our systems are, what we're prepared for, sure. whether that's wildfires or chemical spills. Um, but the, the generation versus the transmission, um, generating electricity is really kind of an issue of physics. Uh, you, can, you can spin turbines. Um, you can um, gather uh, uh, energy from the sun, from wind, from, from oceans, uh, from, from hydroelectric facilities. Uh, nuclear, uh, historically, there's there's been a lot more coal in the system. Sure. Um, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit, natural gas. So the, the generating is, I think, fairly well understood um, in, in general by the public. Sure. Uh, the transmission system is, is very complex. It's very broad. Um, it takes a long time to build transmission. Um, it's very expensive. Um, and will become more and more important as the generating resources become more variable and change um, over the next several decades. Um, transmission is one of the critical issues to the uh, the grid, I'll, I'll just call it. Um, now, we, we happen to participate uh, and are connected to what's called the Western Interconnect, and that's really the, the 11 Western states and two provinces in Canada are what I would consider our grid. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, the transmission system is, is going to become more and more critical to what we're doing. It's, it's funny, and, 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 you know, my knowledge of the grid is, is very, very limited. But as I understand it, there are, aren't there like two major sort of directional grids, the Western and Eastern grid, and then Texas has like its own grid or something like that. But my question is, is that obviously the grid has proven to be extremely effective probably 99.99% of the time. But of course, that, that idea of transmission, something can happen that, that creates problems. And we've seen that over, the, over time. I guess, how has the grid evolved and maybe where will it continue to evolve as we go forward yeah i I think where it's going to continue to (coughs) evolve is is associated with the changes that we're seeing uh, on the generation side Um, when you when you think about uh, coal and you think about natural gas um, those are resources that could be dispatched whenever we need them so they're dispatched by humans Um, if we need more energy at a particular time, you can crank those up or down. They're, they're reliable. Uh, and those are, in essence, going away. Okay. Um, and that's for, for environmental reasons and also for economic reasons. And they're being replaced by variable resources, wind and solar. Um, and to be able to do that reliably, you have to build out quite a bit more wind and solar because it's intermittent. And you have to distribute it across a much broader 
geographic footprint. And or you know, the sun may not shine in all places at the same time. It, the wind might not blow in all places at the same time. And so the the transmission system is going to have to be um, um, built out, and it's also going to be optimized as to what's flowing through it um, and what and and when it's flowing through it. So. Um, it has evolved. Uh, it's going to continue to need to be to be built out, um, and probably in new directions and new ways because we're we're going to be uh, distributing generation across uh, a broader footprint. Before, interesting as you were talking, before we go to our next break, um, you know, I think that, and someone who's an expert as yourself is obviously well positioned to, to perhaps answer this question, which is coal and and natural gas and other things. They're very reliable in terms of just the, just the bottom line of being able to generate electricity and power. Obviously, you talked about solar and wind, which I think we're all very excited about, but they have challenges. Obviously, nighttime comes every day, so that, that, right. that can knock out solar. Wind, obviously, the wind doesn't blow. Just in a very 30,000-foot view, how much do you think the general public should understand that this transition in power is going to take some time to get used to, and it may even take some, maybe sacrifice is too big a word, but just kind of, uh, I'll use it for now, sacrifice in terms of just understanding that it may not be as reliable, or not reliable, but may not be as convenient as we've all grown up with. Well, it, it's a great point, Michael, that, that you bring up relative to the fact that as we transition through new new energy resources that it's going to have to be a team effort okay. it's, it's going it, customers are going to have to participate uh, with utilities to be able to align and synchronize supply with demand um, you know when you think you know it's you you have an electric vehicle indeed indeed yeah um, the the time of which you charge that electric vehicle will matter if if everybody gets home from work and plugs in all at the same time you create these masses uh, of of peak energy demand, um, which is really difficult to for utilities to handle. Um, whereas if that's timed or spread out um, over different periods of time, um, when energy is, is more prolific, um, when it's cleaner as well, uh, time really matters when it comes to, to uh, electricity in, in particular. Um, I also think it's really important for, the, for all of us to understand that this isn't necessarily a natural gas versus electricity type issue. Energy has to be looked at holistically across all of the different forms, whether that's gasoline for your car, internal combustion engines versus electric versus hydrogen fuel cells, whatever that is. Um, it's going, we're going to have to look at this holistically. And we're gonna, there are going to be some consumption patterns that need to change, um, which is part of the reason that we're really trying to look at how we set up our customer interaction. Um, customers are going to have to participate and, and be rewarded for using electricity when it's cleaner and cheaper um, because it is very dynamic and it is getting more dynamic. And Indeed. that's one of the biggest challenges we face going forward. I bet, I bet. Well, we're going to take our next break. We're talking with Frank Lawson, the general manager of eWeb. We will be back in just a second. The car that I donated actually was my parents' car. It needed some work to be done on it, and it got to the point that the cost of the repairs was going to be greater than the car was even worth. So I decided to check with my dad to see if he agreed that maybe we should just donate it. 
you know, he was uh, pleasantly surprised to see that he got a tax write-off, and uh, he was happy that we supported public radio. Learn more about supporting KLCC by way of a vehicle donation at our website, klcc.org. And we're back talking with Frank Lawson, the general manager of eWeb. Um, you have a, a, a pretty major initiative or a plan called the Integrated Resource Plan. Can you talk about that and what that's going to mean both for your organization as well as customers in general? Sure. The, the Integrated Resource Plan is... Uh, a way that a utility can take a look. This, this uh, has to do with the electric utility, not okay. the water. Um, and it's a way that utilities take a look and say, what's the demand going to look like over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years? It's a long-term plan that we dive into all kinds of modeling and details to be able to figure out what's the optimal resource mix that we need to, to procure to uh, fulfill the, the obligations uh, of our consumers. And so it starts with looking at um, our consumption patterns. Um, consumption varies significantly based on weather, for example, sure. time of year, time of day, um, whether it's spring break or not spring break. Uh, there, there are so many variables in there, and we have to go through a lot of, of modeling uh, not only today, but we then have to forecast what's going to be the impact of further electrification, for example. Um, and we, we develop this model on the, on the consumption side, and then we go through, and each kind of generating resource has its own uh, characteristics and profile. Some of those have to do with how much carbon they generate. Others, um, such as, as wind and solar, when do they generate? Um, you know, Montana wind is different than Columbia Gorge wind, for example, and we have to model all that. And one of the other things that we model in that is energy efficiency and conservation. That is, we treat that as a resource. It's a, it's a very um, positive interaction point with customers. Um, everybody likes to use less. Um, actually, the most carbon-free energy is the energy not used. And so... Sure. Um, we model that and we, we put it together. There's, there's various constraints that, that our board has put on us around um, environmental attributes going forward. And we, we crank this out and it tells us, um, and, and we'll be uh, putting out a, a, a calculated version of what we think our crystal ball tells us about the future and what resources we need um, kind of later this year. Uh, again, that's based on some assumptions and then we will do a lot of sensitivity analysis around that. You know, what happens if there's greater or lesser degrees of electrification? What happens if, there's, if transmission costs get, get higher uh, across the region or lower across the region? And really, uh, we'll invite the public uh, starting at the first of the year for a number of months to, to take a look at what we're doing to provide public input uh, direction, guidance. Um, again, this first version will be kind of a shot out of the gate. Here's what our models tell us. Uh, and then there's lots of opportunities to adjust. And eventually, around the middle of the year, uh, we will come up with an action plan that says these are the kinds of things that we need to start doing. Some of those will, will be obvious, energy efficiency and conservation, for example. Uh, but then what other kind of programs are we going to need to be able to work with customers uh, going forward, and what kind of resources are we going to have to look to to either develop or purchase um, going forward? And and we will be in a process of doing this every couple of years. Um, it's it's not something that you just do once and then you put it on the shelf. 
we have a lot of generating resource decisions to make in the next five to ten years, uh, the largest being uh, associated with the Bonneville Power Administration, um, which is the the uh, marketing agency of the uh, Federal Columbia River Dam Systems. And so uh, we have some decisions to make in 2028 regarding, well, probably 2025 regarding that contract. Yeah. It's interesting. I think every business leader owner uh, talks about the fact that their particular business or or, or uh, the way in which they do their job, it's hard to predict the future. But I imagine for a utility company, that is a problem times 12 in terms of predictability. Because I imagine there are probably technologies you may you may rely on that don't even necessarily exist right now. How, in, in talking about this plan, forecasting must be one of the biggest challenges. Well, uh, forecasting, um, also, you know, looking at investments that you make, um, it's, um, and that's why, you know, early on in this conversation, I mentioned that uh, our our role in the community does not end in five years or yeah. three years. It's, it's a yeah. perpetual uh, obligation that we have. And so... Um, utilities um, pretty routinely do a lot of long-term planning, and there's lots of contingency planning in there and sensitivity analysis that we do. Um, one of the biggest challenges that that utilities are facing, in particular in the energy fields, is that the variables are becoming more and more dynamic. And, and one example of that is if you just want to look across the 11 western states, okay. the regulations around carbon – uh, and emissions in those 11 Western states are all different. Oh. And yet we have one integrated grid. So how <laughs> do you operate an integrated grid in 11 different um, rules and regulation sets? And so um, customer expectations are changing, right? So um, technology is changing. And so we're uh, part of our role and part of the reason that the integrated resource plan in particular is not a one and done kind of plan is we want to be able to forecast and predict and mitigate and, and evolve and iterate on this over and over again. Um, one of the things about change uh, and being able to adapt and, and really take advantage of opportunities uh, that come around through change is that you have to increase uh, your throughput. You have to be able to be able to do things on a different um, cycle. And so... Um, really one of the keys to the organization is going to be how quickly can we, can we respond to things? How flexible can we be? And so a lot of our resiliency work, a lot of our planning work is now uh, not just one and done, but it's an iterative process. Sure. And and you might be somewhat uniquely positioned as, a, as an organization. And what I mean by that is this. Your customers probably 99% of the time only think about you if something goes wrong. We're so used to the predictability of turning on a light switch and it works, turning on the tap and water flows. But obviously if that gets disruptive. So I imagine some of this planning like you talked about is 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 both customer demand, customer expectation, but then also I would imagine Customer education is is enormously important for what you do. Talk a little bit about that because you know, yeah. If I make widgets, I may not. I, I may have to market and educate my uh, customer. But in terms of something so life sustaining like water and power, education must be an enormous component of what you guys need to do. It, it's absolutely important, and it's 
probably going to become more important as the interactions with customers become more critical to being able to sort of optimize the generation of electricity versus the consumption, for example. So it, it it's one of those things where it you know it when you think about a, a utility sort of a monopoly, sure. right? There would be sure. people can't go next door. <laughs> um, at the same, your competition time, is candles or something or, like or, that, right? <laughs> some other alternative. Um, but the important piece of that is that. Um, we have to be able to optimize the system. Yeah. We have to be able to do this in a way that meets the expectations uh, of our community. You know, even though uh, we are a monopoly, in some ways, part of what the utility has has spent quite a bit of time on on in the last few years is this educational piece. piece the fact that that we have to, at some point, um, work together to solve these problems. And working together means working you know, in, in lockstep with the community on these issues. And so um, education is a big piece of it. Uh, most of the time, and I think historically, people uh, were pretty passive users okay. uh, of electricity and, and water. I think the more that people become aware of the complexities and the fact that it, it costs dramatically different, uh, differently when you use it, um, or the carbon content is is different when you use it. There's going to have to be some alignment that is a little bit more precise and, and more interactive and more active as opposed to passive. And that's that's going to take an ongoing educational effort. So where you sit today, and then putting on your futures cap and looking out in, into that future, are you pretty bullish on this, both for eWeb, but then also nationally and, and we can say globally, this pretty historic transition of 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 power generating sources as well as conservation of water and and some of the ways that that that, are you pretty bullish on how this transition is going to ultimately go i'm i'm generally a bullish person so uh, i i'm i'm optimistic i I will also say that if you look back over the last few centuries you know i think there was the industrial revolution sure. there was the information age i really do think that we're talking about a major energy transition um in in the next several decades uh, some of that is is driven just through the necessities of addressing climate change uh, some of the issues associated with population shifts uh, we, we will likely see in the northwest some degree of migration um, climate immigrants if you want to call them that uh, we're also seeing issues with water you know, just take a look at what's going on with the Colorado River Indeed. and the fact that water is becoming more precious. Um, the scarcity of the resources um, is something that we will have to address. It's just I'm, I'm excited about all the different types of technology that's being investigated, various storage technologies um, and, and generating technologies. Um, so I'm I believe it's an opportunity for society to really be able to respond. Will it be easy? No. Um, will people have to shift and understand consumption differently? Will it become more expensive? Yes. Um, uh, all those things uh, will happen. 
but I also think it's a great opportunity to to take a look at setting up our society to, to be able to make this transition that's going to be impactful for for centuries. Sure, sure. You know, as we as we close out this interview talking about transition, some of your physical plant you're going through this transition. Maybe give us an update on your you know your your, your headquarters and the steam plant and sort of you have a, you're you're a big property owner in this town and that's in transition. Give us an update on on where all that stands. Right. Well, you know, we, we like to think of our util- ourselves as a utility and not as property owners, okay. but I think we, we do own probably more than 200 properties uh, around the city of Eugene, uh, some of them a little bit more obvious than others. Yeah. Um, we, we are transitioning out of our headquarters building. We've been doing that for a number of years. There's a, a very limited staff left at that location. Um, we, in, in 2010, uh, built a new operations center out in, in West Eugene, and that's where where most of our employees are located. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that there has been a little bit of a transition since uh, uh, COVID hit, um, and our hybrid work environment is is much different uh, now than it was pre-COVID. Um, but some of those properties, the headquarters building is one that that um, the uh, the board has asked me to explore the, the disposition and the sale of. Um, and so... Uh, that's something that we'll be talking with a number of people about and gauging interest across the community to to purchase that. Um, it's um, we again don't want to be in the property management business, and so um, it's something that uh, we'd like to prioritize to to basically um, to somebody else. Um, the The steam plant was interesting. That was part of a deal that we. Um, sold 17 acres to the city of Eugene, which is now being developed as part of the, the riverfront yeah. park and, and development, and the steam plant was a piece of that. And so that was a, a pretty major transition um, for eWeb in in the early 2000s when the we, we moved away from steam and, and steam heat in downtown Eugene. That was a little bit before my time, but I hear a <laughs> lot of stories. Um, but yeah, we're in process. I would, I would expect that we could potentially enter into some kind of, of deal to transition out of that building and sell it to somebody else, uh, hopefully within the next uh, few months. Yeah, yeah. Well, this has been very enlightening, pardon the pun, um, uh, to, to talk about this. And, and I, you know, as we close out, I think, boy, had we been having this conversation 40 years ago, it might have been, yeah, your utility, it's kind of predictable and boring, but it's no longer that. I mean, because obviously both things that are exciting and things that are a bit scary kind of are all sort of converging on you at the same time. Right. Yeah, there's there's so many uh, dynamics that are taking place on both the supply side and the and the demand side. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned earlier, there's all kinds of threats that, that we have and we face. Um, I know that, that uh, the famous question, what keeps you up at night, um, <laughs> is, is one of those that I, I know get asked of a lot of people. Um, I actually sleep pretty well. Um, and, you know, despite all of the different threats, um, and part of the reason that, that, that I'm confident um, is that eWeb has a great staff. Um, we're part of a a wonderful community. I think we're preparing uh, more and more on all of these different issues all the time. We're building resiliency into almost everything we do, um, whether that's our finances, our employees, and their their skills and abilities, um, just our, our bench strength in, in that, um, our infrastructure, all of those things, uh, resiliency and being able to continue the important products and services day in, day out, forever 
um, is a part of that, and I have a lot of confidence in the organization. Great. Well, if if the GM of eWeb can sleep at night, maybe the rest of us can can also sleep knowing that as well. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming in. Um, that was our conversation with Frank Lawson of eWeb. He's the general manager. Boy, there's a lot happening and will happen at eWeb to meet the energy and water demands of our community into the future. This has been the Oregon Rainmakers podcast on KLCC. I'm Michael Dunn, your host. Thanks for listening.